I've got a theory that it's a demon, a dancing demon. No, something isn't right there. I've got a theory, some kid is dreaming, and we're all stuck inside his wacky Broadway nightmare. I've got a theory, we should work this out. It's getting eerie, what's this cheery singing all about? It could be witches, some evil witches, which is ridiculous, because witches, they were persecuted, wicked, good, and love the earth and women power, and I'll be over here. I've got a theory, it could be Barney's. I've got a theory, I'm just cute like everybody's All right, that's actually from a staff meeting at Newsmax, trying to explain... No, it's not. Uh, it's sort of... It's something I do want to discuss at some point today. Not that song, exactly. <laughs> but um, I'm feeling a kind of exhaustion with trying to explain or reason with people who want to circulate unscientific theories or want to somehow or other impugn either scientific consensus uh, about the pandemic or impugn normal, well-thought-out public health initiatives related to the pandemic or impugn Anthony Fauci. So, but it's like, you know, you just have to, it's like a full-time job. You want to sort of say, well, no, that's not exactly what happened. No, this is why I can't do an entire show on some wacky six-part, you know, COVID-revealed conspiracy nut program you want me to watch. Uh, It's tiring. Anyway, um, we are going to do all calls today. We have two actually very interesting calls right away from both Katie and from Todd. Uh, and the rest of you can call 888-720-WNPR. You yourself are allowed to decide what you call up about. And I would say feel free to challenge me with something a little out of the box, something I probably couldn't have studied for. It turns out I didn't really study for anything anyway, but but you know what I'm saying. 888-720-9677. I really do feel like, you know, um, that in some ways... One of the self-assessments we have to do every day, we should all do, is like, how much fun am I today, right? You know, we're doing an entire show on fun. I, I'm going to say in January, it's a Betsy Kaplan jam, so I don't really know when, to, when it is, but we're doing an entire show about the whole concept of fun. Uh, but, you know, each of us contains a fluctuating dimension of fun, right? Sometimes you are really ready to bring, bring to fun, you know, you just bring on to fun. And then other times you just don't have that much fun to have, to share, I mean, with other people. You don't have, you know what I'm saying? We can inject fun into life. We can produce it from our innards into life. And then sometimes we can. I feel a little fun impaired today, but who knows? I might surprise myself. All right. So... <laughs> We're doing this weird thing where we've got a call and we're, see, we're going to try to see what we can find some music to play at the end of the call, which we don't typically do because we don't know what the calls are going to be about. So I guess uh, – so Katie, just hang on here because we're doing a little bit of a search. Katie, don't go away. I do want to talk about John Lennon. First, I'm going to talk to Todd from Suffield and then I'm going to talk to you. All right. So Todd from Suffield, you have the floor. Hello. Hi, Colin. Can you hear me? Very well. Yeah, I uh, really enjoyed your show with Joe Lieberman yesterday, and uh, very glad that you guys got along well and that there was no shouting. Yes. we, we uh, I mean, I don't know. You know, afterwards I had this really bad feeling that, you know, he wasn't really responsive to a lot of my questions. He just sort of ignored stuff I would bring up, you know. And, like, I could have been more of a bastard about the whole thing, but it just didn't really seem called for. He's, 
He's 79 years old. You know, um, I remember one time I was sitting in the Irish American Club in New Britain with my friend David Pudlin, Pudlin, and this old guy comes over and he's got, you know, like a little milk carton thing to raise money for the IRA. And, and Pudlin looked at me and said, give him some money. They're too old to hurt anybody anymore. And I sort of feel like, you know, maybe Joe Lieberman has done whatever harm he's done. Maybe it's, it's over now or not. Anyway, continue, continue. I've been listening to you for a very long time, 20-some years. Oh, my God. It reminded me of, uh, you know, you're talking about the 2000 election with Gore and Lieberman. And I remember when your WTIC days, you had a great idea for an ad for Lieberman um, to help him in, like, more conservative areas. Mm-hmm. And your idea was, well, he may be a Jew, but he's a better Christian than you are. Yep. Yeah, I think that was more during the time—I could be wrong about this, but, you know, he made a a faint stab at running for president, I think, in 2004. I think that might have been in particular when, when I, I was floating that idea, because it was really was true. And, you know, he had allied himself with some—you know, he was going on these very conservative Christian TV shows, to, and, and until Paul, Paul Bass was the one who figured out this was happening, you know, and like some of these people, it, it's one of those things where you, you're he's dealing with these super, super right-wing and sometimes kind of wacky Christian pastors who have like all kinds of unsavory and unpalatable beliefs, but they're— they're into Israel. You know, they're really into Israel. Now, I think what somebody like Joe Lieberman sometimes failed to grasp was they weren't, in, they were basically interested in Israel to get it for Christians. You know, I mean, that's, what, that's why they cared about Israel. But anyway, so he'd make common cause with them. But he knows a lot about the Bible. Absolutely. You know, so I, I, it was a good slogan, I thought. He didn't use it. No, but it, that was a good idea. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your, anything else, Todd. Can I help uh, with anything else? Otherwise, we're going to move on to Katie. I really enjoy your um, your uh, musical deep dive shows that you've done, and uh, and uh, you know with Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, um, all all the ones you've done. Yeah. Um, have you considered doing one on Stevie Wonder? Oh. I could do like five um, deep dive musical shows on Stevie Wonder. That that's the reality of it. I would say actually. During during the time that my significant other was hospitalized for for ten and a half months, reduced counting, uh, but during the time I was able to visit her, Stevie Wonder played a bigger role in our lives than anybody who wasn't a doctor or a nurse. You know, I mean, it, it was like we would play music and enjoy the music together, and and I, I think Stevie kind of emerged as you know. And yes, we could absolutely do a deep dive show on Stevie Wonder, and we should. All right, speaking of music. We're going to move along to Kate, uh, and there she is. She's ready to go. Hi, Kate. Hi, Colin. How are you? Just fine. <clears throat> so I heard you um, coming on air saying you're just feeling like kind of glum, and I just thought, well, I'm feeling very glum, and uh, it's just every December 8th is, you know, I can't do anything about it. It's just always there. You're talking about the death, the death of John Lennon 41 years ago. Yep, yeah. So I was in my 20s, and um, I had gone to high school two blocks from the Dakota, so I always got off the subway right in front of the Dakota and walked a couple blocks to my high school. And, you know, that was in the 70s, and, I mean, he was such a fan of New York City when it was such a crappy city. It was so dangerous and dank, and he just loved it. And um, I don't know. 
He was such a New Yorker. To us New Yorkers, he was such a New Yorker. And um, it's just like the loss I feel every December 8th, the loss. And I think about where he was in his life, you know, with his music, with Yoko and his family. And just the loss just always seemed so huge to me. You know, know? that's all totally legit. Although, not that I am really empowered to speak for John Lennon, but I don't think he'd want somebody to be sad every day for 41 years uh, about this. Uh, I'm going to prove it to you musically in a few minutes. But, um, well, I'm sad. I'm sad one day a year. Yeah. Not, not every single day. Right. One day but a year for 41 December. years. Yeah. 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 One day a year for 41 years. Right. You know what I remember, too, <laughs> is that, you know, it was, uh, it, it was right on the cusp, I think. Uh, I don't really exactly remember when CDs were, uh, were introduced, but w- that was the day where people, they, they mourned with vinyl, you know? I even, I was down in downtown Hartford that day, and people were uh, going to, I think, Al Franklin's, whatever that place, Al Franklin's World of Music or something, and buying albums, vinyl albums, vinyl LPs, John, right. uh, John Lennon, because they wanted more. They wanted to be able to sort of, so it was sort of one of the last times when, you know, for a musical morning, vinyl was essentially your only option. Uh, and um, I actually also was asked to, I was tasked uh, by my employers at the time with covering the trial of Mark David Chapman. Um, And so all of us who were covering the trial, we all booked like long-term hotel rooms, hotel rooms we could keep in New York for quite a long time if we needed to and made all kinds of other provisions because it was understood that there was actually going to be a trial. And then on the morning of the trial, we were all, we all showed up in the courthouse courtroom, and he pled out. Um, so, which is probably a good thing. I don't think we wanted to go through that. But anyway, I feel your pain. I would say, you know, I mean, maybe it's a good thing just to spend a little time with something as melancholy as that, or you could just well, schedule yeah, something else I, on I, December eighth. It's true, but you know, I think I'm also melancholy because of COVID and people getting killed every day in the United States and. Right. To tra- wanting to travel, especially to travel outside of this country and not being able to. I know. So that's that's very, it's very frustrating for, for a lot of us, all of that. I will say that I, I – well, I'll talk about this later. I mean, it's something that we talked about on Monday too. It really is possible that Omicron is our way out of this. Uh, we don't know that yet, but there's some reason to suspect that might be true. So anyway, listen, Kate, I don't want you to feel terribly, terribly bad. And so we're going to do something we don't typically do, which is in the middle of this segment, we are going to play a, a little bit of a song that is just for you, Kate. Here we go. Oh, sweet. Thank you. Don't you know it's gonna last? It's a last forever. It's a love that has no end. Don't let me See, I feel already this is a mitzvah, you know? We've done we've done a mitzvah. We had somebody who's sad about John Lennon. This will either, either make her infinitely sadder or ideally make her feel, you know, like there's a little moment here. Um, all right. 
Uh, well, let's go. Once again, let me give out the phone number. Uh, there are no topics that are off limits, although there are probably some topics that should be off limits. Uh, but basically, it, it's a, a format we call Ask or Tell Me Anything. Uh, and uh, the number is 888-720-WNPR. 888-720-9677. I should also say that I meant to... As I ran out of the house today, grab a Mr. Carp envelope, and I forgot to do it. So we don't even have the break glass in case of emergency uh, feature that we typically have, which is an envelope sent to me, sealed envelope sent to me by Mr. Carp, containing things that might be interesting to talk about. We don't have that today. So you, you all, you have to be my Mr. Carp. Uh, all right. Here is Tyler. Tyler from somewhere, from west somewhere. Hi, Tyler. You're Brantford. on the air. <laughs> hey, I'm from Brantford. Um, so my father, who's passed away, uh, was the owner of a nightclub uh, in New Haven in the 70s called the Arcadia Ballroom. Which I remember. And I know the remote. Yeah. yeah, I figured you probably did. Um, I, I was just calling to see if you had any memories or stories, if any other callers did. Um, just... Just think, I've just been thinking about it a lot. I know the Ramones used to play there. I have a whole bunch of slides that I have to go through. But he didn't tell me that many stories before he passed, unfortunately. So yeah, I'm um, taking you. You were you would have been too young to partake of the oh, yes. delights of the Arcadia. Did I, I? Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure that I ever saw a thing there. I mean, I was kind of. I was. I was briefly in the late '70s, as I've pointed out many times the worst rock critic in America. And so I did go to a lot of shows. I don't know that I went to the Arcadia. Typically stuff that played the Arcadia would play one of the venues up closer to Hartford. We had There was one on Dexter Avenue in West Hartford that changed its name two or three different times, I think. Uh, and I think there was one over in New Britain, too. Th- those clubs were really interesting, though. And I, one thing that I can say is sort of, you know, in the late, when would this have been? <laughs> the late 70s, I'm going to say. Um, yep. th- there was um, a time when... Um, building kind of on the sound of punk, but not quite as committed to the nihilism and and rejection of craft implicit in punk. There was this movement called New Wave, and and part of the new so new the New Wave move bands they mostly came out of England, and I mean notably some of the New Wave bands were or acts were. The police, you know, and Joe Jackson and Elvis Costello, and they were all kind of at least branded by their record company as sort of new wave acts. And they initially were not able to fill, you know, even like a halfway decent sized auditorium. So they played. I don't know how many of the Arcadia held, but you'd have these clubs that could maybe, you know, put 200, 300 people in there. That was a good size for I saw the police on their first visit to America in a club not much bigger than the Arcadia, I think. So it was a pretty cool yeah, that, time. Go ahead. That was, the, that was the idea with the Arcadia. He did tell me that, that the whole idea was to catch acts going from New York to Boston, smaller acts. But I know the Ramones played their first U.S. show there. Wow. Well, so right yeah. there, right there you've got something kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, I think that was a really interesting time that way too, particularly for that size venue. Uh, and uh, And I mean... Well, anyway, I, I could tell other stories uh, about the days of punk, but I don't know if this is the right day for it. Uh, but anyway, thanks very much for your call, Tyler. Uh, and we have open lines here, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. So, yeah, I got a couple minutes here. I just want to talk a little bit about this problem, about what we do. 
Actually, forget about that for a second. I'll talk about something else. Uh, one of the things that I'm intrigued by these days is the question of how we think about people who who harm other people but in a less active way. So one of the news stories of the past week, uh, as you may know, is that President Trump, while president, um, had a positive test for COVID followed by a negative test for COVID. These were both uh, rapid tests um, prior to his debate with Joe Biden. And, And now, and this has all been now reported by his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, in his book, Meadows is kind of <clears throat> getting a little bit jumpy about all the publicity caused by this. But, I mean, meanwhile, reporters are constructing these timelines where, in fact, right around that time that Trump uh, tested positive, he was symptomatic in some way. You know, he was pretty clearly fighting some kind of bug. Uh, and he was on the White House. Uh, he was on Air Force One with the White House press corps. Uh, at least one person from the White House press corps wound up uh, also infected with COVID not too long after Trump paid a visit to that part of the plane. <laughs> the plane. Uh, and he wound up, according to the Washington Post's reporting, he wound up in contact with about 500 people before he you know, got really sick. I and mean, he did get really sick. And he got really sick about a week to 10 days out from that initial positive test that was followed by a negative test. I mean, what he should have done right after that, they should have scheduled it. He should have cut off his schedule and he uh, he should have had a PCR test. Um, that would have told him a lot more. But if you kind of look at the timeline that resulted in his ultimate hospitalization at Walter Reed, it makes more sense that that's when he started to get sick, when he had that positive test that they didn't announce to anybody. So first of all, that's sort of a horrible thing to do. It's sort of a rotten thing to do is to have a positive test and be in touch with a lot, even if you're not the president, you know, to be in touch with a lot of people and not tell anybody. Um, It's also increasingly clear that if that's the case, if that whole story kind of holds together, you know, we thought that Trump probably got COVID at the Amy Coney Barrett day at the White House, the Rose Garden event, followed by an indoor event. It seems more likely now he gave people COVID <laughs> at that event, that he was part of the super spreading uh, process uh, at, at that particular event. But I, the other thing that I don't understand, and I'm not the first person to raise this, but so he goes to the debate with Biden. He's had a positive test, which he hasn't reported to anybody. He also hasn't followed it up with a PCR to confirm or deny it. Um, and... If you remember, or if you've seen the reporting now, he didn't. They were supposed to get tested right before the debate. He didn't get tested because he arrived so late. Well, like on what planet is that a reason not to test somebody who's about to walk out on stage with another guy in his seventies, who you know would be imperiled, significantly imperiled by you know exposure to COVID. I mean, what's up with the Commission on Presidential Debates? Or, I mean, you know what this is all about. It's all about television, right? Television has a start time for this debate. And that turned out in that situation to be more important than making sure that one of the two people participating in the debate followed the rules and got a COVID test. I mean, I just, you know, I just don't get that. I just, I mean, on what planet does that make any sense? That if you don't, if you're Donald Trump and you don't feel like taking the test because you know you might be positive again, you might be COVID positive again, the first one had been a couple of days before that, well, just show up late and then they won't make you have a test. I, I just, I don't get it.
Um, so um, I, I've been thinking about that. I don't know if these two topics really go together, but I've been very fascinated by the um, the handling of the Crumbly case in, in Michigan, the school shooting in Michigan, uh, in, in which, as I think most people know now, the parents, at least there's going to be attempt, an attempt made to prosecute the parents for their, their culpability and all this. And if you've seen the description, if you've seen their timeline and all the things that they did that kind of made this horrible thing happen, you know, it, it's sort of a similar thing. You don't necessarily have to do a horrible thing to have a to have a hand in a horrible thing. You know, I mean, Trump basically went around probably just infecting a whole bunch of people because he just didn't feel like dealing with the fact that he had a positive COVID test. Um, the Crumblies knew they had a kid who really had some pretty significant problems, and they addressed that by giving him a gun and then by waving off a whole bunch of warning signs. Um, and, and you sort of think about that, that, that you know, increasingly... I don't know. I, I mean, and I don't even know, looking at the Crumblies, how ultimately that's going to play out or even how it should play out. But I, I, it is clearer to me these days, or I'm very intrigued by it, let's put it that way. I'm intrigued by that idea that these these days that, you know, you can't just look at what people do. It's also what people don't do. They, they can do things to stop a horrible situation. If you're the president and you've got a positive COVID test, you can quarantine yourself. Uh, if you're the Crumblies and you're seeing all these warning signs and you know the period of American history that we've been through dating back to Columbine, you act. You do something. You get called into school that day. You check your kid's backpack. You, I mean, they went to a meeting that day at the school. Uh, maybe you take your kid home because of this weird stuff that he's been writing. Uh, you certainly make sure that you know where the gun that you gave him is and that he doesn't have it in school. Uh, I mean, and I do think that increasingly it does make sense to me to to hold people responsible for stuff that they don't do that they're supposed to do. I mean, there's a whole body of law about that, obviously, called It involves usually concepts like negligence. But I wonder if there's a whole body of moral accountability that we need to look at. Anyway, that's what I've been thinking about all morning. And we're going to take a little break here. Oh, well, let's just take Tom. We'll take Tom and then we'll take a little break. Why should Tom have to sit through a break? Here's Tom from Stores. Hi. Hi. Um, you know, with the um, with the attempted coup and uh, having um, possibility of losing our democracy, it could even happen. Could have happened then. It could happen in four years. I'm just kind of wondering. Well, how would it affect my daily life? Uh, would it? It seems like it'd be horrible, but would it really be that horrible? And uh, you know, I guess for certain classes of people, it might be different. But uh, any thoughts? It's a really great question. You know, it, it's a terrific question. I do have some thoughts about it, um, and, and maybe some of the other listeners have some thoughts about it too. So, just to repeat his question, and we'll go to a break, then we'll come back and we'll talk about it. Like, what would happen? I mean, I think what Tom is specifically suggesting is that, you know, last January 6th, there was uh, an attempt made to stop Congress from certifying legitimate election results. Um, and there was, an, there was pressure put on Pence to participate in, in essentially uh, a false accounting uh, of the national election. And that if any of that stuff had worked, 
Uh, and really, you know, when you look at the videos and stuff like that, boy, I mean, I don't know if that would have worked. I think ultimately we would have certified the election one way or another. But, I mean, a lot of things went right that day that that, that kept people from being – kept members of Congress from being significantly harmed. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we talked about this a lot, actually, the day after – Donald Trump's election in 2016. Like, what does it mean? What's it like to live in a society that isn't this society? Um, and and I'll just say one thing about that, and then we'll go to break and we can talk some more. As I think Tom was implying, for some people, it wouldn't be that different. If you're, first of all, if you are very poor and disadvantaged, if you're sort of on the losing end of a lot of this uh, this society's propositions, probably not all that different. I mean, that was sort of the theme. If you remember the Saturday Night Live episode right after the election that had both Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock on it. And, the, you know, the the joke that they were telling is not really a joke, which is that, oh, no, well, we've, we've already been living in a society that's unfair, that is in many ways uh, uh, an autocratic police state. Uh, we have been dealing with systematic injustice for you know pretty much our entire lives and many lives preceding ours. So we're we're not clutching our pearls at this particular moment. It's not going to be all that different. I think also if you're on the opposite end, if you're very well positioned, it doesn't make that much different what difference what kind of system you're living under, and you tend to benefit from changes like that kind of a change. So it would be the people in the middle that we'd be talking about probably. But anyway, our number, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Let's take a break and we'll be back. I always get a doggy bag from the waiter So I just keep what's still unshoed And I take it home Save it for later. But then I deal with fungal rot, bacterial formation, microbes, enzymes, mold, and oxidation. I don't care. I've got a secret trick up my sleeve. I never bother with baggies, glass jars, Tupperware containers, plastic cling wrap, really a no-brainer. I just like to keep all my plate of steel and pipe. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org slash WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. 
All right, welcome back. I'm Colin McEnroe. This is an Ask or Tell Me Anything program. That means we have no guests booked. We didn't preordain any topics. Uh, our number is 888-720-WNPR. You get to call up and tell me what the topics are. 888-720-9677 if you're not into the alphanumeric part of it. Um, you know, before I get back to Tom's question, Greg's thing is so interesting that I'm going to take it right now. Uh, and, and what I have to say in response to this topic may surprise a few people. Maybe not. Um, hi, Greg. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Uh, I really enjoy your show. And one quick thing. I wish you'd bring back that political show you guys used to do on Wednesdays uh, for the state of Connecticut. The Wheelhouse. The Wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah. Really enjoyed that. Oh, a quick question. Uh, about what's your opinion on the, uh, the swimmer? at the universe, I guess, transgender swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania, who seems to be uh, setting records and shattering records uh, uh, as, a, as a male, but, uh, you know, identifies as a female. Just wanted to get your opinion on that. Right. So I think this is a really interesting topic. And, of course, transgender can mean a whole bunch of things. Um, and it's like, so one transgender person doesn't have the same route or profile to his or her or their status as, as another, maybe another one does. But this is a topic, I'm not going to speak, speak specifically to Leah Thomas because I don't really know anything about her uh, or them. Um, but I will speak in a general way and just talk a little bit about my own struggle with this. I mean, I think if, you're, if you kind of self-identify as a left of center person, maybe a liberal um, and particularly if you have a radio show, one thing people ask you, and often in not a particularly nice tone of voice, which I will now attempt to approximate is, well, can you name anything that you believe that is just kind of boilerplate dyed in the wool liberal? You know, that, you know that, that tone of voice. And for me, this might be an area. It's an area where I have more questions than answers. I feel like I need to be educated more. I need to try harder to understand it. But in general, that whole notion of people who are transgender, particularly male to female transgender, uh, competing as uh, as female athletes, I, I struggle with this a little bit. I mean, to use the most obvious and blunt edged, uh, I don't know, fulcrum for, for, for launching this conversation, I mean, you know, nobody in the WNBA is good enough to play in the NBA. Um, no team in the WNBA could compete physically against the NBA, uh, an NBA team. And, and you know, I mean, that's that doesn't really get into the more granular aspects of all this. And it's why I, I preface all, the, all of this by saying one transgender person is different from another transgender person. They, you know, the route that they take to where they are at any given moment uh, will vary. But I, I do struggle with this whole question. If you are... If you are a born female athlete and you've trained all your life and worked really hard to be a college swimmer or whatever, whatever it is, if it's, you know, if it's an area that involves a lot of upper body strength and stuff like that, I just I, I don't entirely find myself able to agree that a transgender person should be able to jump right in there and, and compete. Uh, and, and, and that that's fair. And I know that that's not an accept. What I've just said is not an acceptable liberal point of view. You're supposed to, you know, go down the line with with opportunity for the entire LGBT community. And I, I think I have a pretty good record for you know, most of that stuff and was, you know, anyway, never mind what my record is. But 
But this, I, you know, I really do have a, I struggle with it. I struggle with it. I, I, I apparently need to be educated more about it. Uh, but if I were uh, a female, a sort of conventionally cisgendered uh, female swimmer for a rival of UPenn and I was losing to Leah Thomas a lot, I, you know, or if I was the parent uh, of that swimmer, I would, it would, <laughs> it would bug me, <laughs> uh, and I would want to know what's going on here. Uh, so it's, I don't have an answer to it, but but my answer to it is that I don't have maybe the standard public radio host answer to this. This is one of these areas where I'm a little less comfortable uh, with uh, you know what seems to be kind of the settled wisdom uh, of the liberal, the left, and the woke, uh, which is of course the worst. Clint Eastwood follow up to the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, of all the ones that he made. I thought that was the least successful. A- anyway, I don't know. I mean, I wish I had a more concrete thing to say about it, but I mean, it it, it doesn't seem right somehow to me. And and I'm I'm eager to learn why that wouldn't be the case. All right, so um, where where were we? Oh, we were going to talk about Tom's thing. Okay, and there's a whole bunch of calls here too. Uh, and about conspiracy theories. I just want to say this about Tom's thing, and, and we can maybe move on here. We could do an entire episode about this. It could be argued that we've actually already tried a few times to do episodes about what life would be like if we, quote unquote, lost democracy. Now, it needs to be said that, you know, an unsuccessful certification of a vote um, and, and the reinstallation of a president who had actually lost the election is anti-democratic <laughs> and, and, and hacks away at the very substructure of what makes us, you know, a functioning democracy if we are one. But it's not the same as totalitarianism. In other words, there's sort of, you know, it's not the same as fascism. Those things have m- sort of more full-blown symptom sets. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened if, let's say, that somehow or other by force and intimidation and chicanery and support from right-wing news networks, if somehow or other Donald Trump, despite having actually lost the 2020 election, were reinstalled as president as 2021, it wouldn't mean that we would default into totalitarianism necessarily. And, and it wouldn't mean that we would default into fascism necessarily. And, and, and my guess is that maybe an average day for an average American might not be all that different. Um, but, I mean, that's just one day. And the reality is if we don't have enough, a functioning electoral system anymore, which I, I think is under assault in lots of different ways, ranging from gerrymandering to, you know, all of these kind of anti-voting eligibility measures passing in state legislators, legislatures right now and measures that would could conceivably empower a state legislature to ignore the popular vote and submit its own slate of electors to the Electoral College, all this stuff. I mean, we've got a real problem here. Um, now, the question is, does it just affect elections? Well, no. I mean, obviously, if people are elected who don't really have the full support of the electorate uh, or even the Electoral College representation of the electorate, that's a real problem. But, in t- but Tom's question, I think, was, what would my, would my daily life change? And I think it's a really fascinating question and maybe another one that I don't have a glib answer to. Um, My guess is that at first your daily life wouldn't be all that different. But if we didn't solve the problem pretty damn quick, I think your daily life, particularly if you were among the people dissenting from this, I think your your daily life could change for the worse pretty quickly. All right. So uh, what do we need to do here? 
Um, all right. Oh, well, we have to take this call. We'll take Gloria, and then we've got Arthur and Rick. We'll take Gloria. We might go to a break after that, and I'll regroup. And we'll take Arthur and Rick and anybody else who wants to call in at 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Gloria, you have the floor. <laughs> Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I wanted to talk about how um, K-dramas, Korean dramas, has changed my life completely in the last uh, year or so um, since, since covid uh, began, and um, one of, I'm, I actually uh, grew up in Connecticut, but I uh, was living in California for the last 12 years, and uh, in Marin County. And my daughter, who was in New Zealand when all of this started, um, this COVID started, uh, was the only relative that I had there. She lived right near me, and she was gone. So. When I isolate, self-isolated for a week, and I thought, this isn't going to work for me. So I moved back to Connecticut, where most of my family is, temporarily, which I thought would be like three months. And uh, I have now been living out of a backpack and a suitcase for about almost two years now. And uh, everything is still in California. And I was a cinemaphile. I have always loved film and movies. And I would go to the movies. I'm about your age. So I would go to the movies. Uh, um, not that that has anything to do with watching films. But uh, I have a few friends in California, but not a lot. So I'd go to the movies myself and watch uh, films about three, four times a week. Wow. And then when I came to Connecticut... For the first year of COVID, and I isolated, I watched all the films, all my old favorite films, and then I got to a point where I kind of ran out of those because I wasn't going to movie theaters anymore. I was just watching them on streaming, and I ran out, and then I I just happened to come across a Korean drama, and that has changed my life completely. I have... Um, I absolutely loved them. They reminded me of when I was growing up in the films that I watched. And they, um, I started just watching Korean dramas. And um, I think that what's happening um, right now with those dramas is what happened in Hollywood when we first started back uh, the explosion in Hollywood of all these fantastic stars between the 1940s and 60s, Cary Grant, Gregory Peck. Humphrey Bogart, all of these stars came all together, all at once. And that's what's happening, I think, since the 2000s in in Korea. They have fantastic actors, the best actors I've I've seen in a long, long time. And their dramas uh, talk about issues that they're having in Korea. And I've watched so many of them that I started learning the language. Mm. Um, Wow. And out of... Just out of coincidence, I happened to be taking a course in teaching English as a foreign language because I wanted to do something online rather than being with people. And so I have decided to move to Korea because everything seems to be at about the stage that I want to be in. Um, I want to watch films that don't have uh, violence just for the sake of violence. Um, uh, or sex, just for the sake sake of getting more audience, and uh, so I, that's one of the reasons I like these films. They bring me back to when I was young and watching these beautiful 
shows that I used to watch after school. Well, Gloria, that's terrific. Uh, First of all, I just want to say I applaud everything that you just said. But when you move to Korea, if you get one of those cards with the circle and the triangle and the square, do not do that. Do not play the squid game. I, I don't want you to, do, to be doing that. I, uh. I, did, I did not watch for the squid game. All right. So I that, they so, were trying so to appeal right. to Americans. Uh, that could be, or to a global audience, really, and they and they were successful too. So let me just let me just like I don't know. My son and I have been watching a few K dramas. So give us one really good recommendation. Give us the 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 Korean Casablanca uh, of, of K dramas to use your your metaphor. Um, well, everybody has their own taste in films, but some of the older films, uh, like uh, Coffee Prince, for instance. What's it called? That's Coffee. Prince. Coffee Prince, okay. Yeah, they they use a lot of uh, one moment you could be like laughing your head off, and then another moment you could be crying over these films, and that's what that's what these films do for you. Secret Garden, Secret Garden, um, okay. the, the one that's uh, the newer one, and the, the really the reason that I started watching these was uh, e- uh, the King Eternal Monarch. Oh, you know what? I think my son and my ex-wife might have watched that one. I think I think they might have. Yeah, the king. Oh. Yeah, they said they they said it was great too. Gloria, I'm just because in the interest of time, because there are a lot of other callers. You're a great caller. I just want to say that. So, but we have to take a break. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to Sarah, a, a former runner for UConn, talking about trans athletes, and we're going to talk to a bunch of other people too. I just haven't decided which ones. All right, so we're back. Time to thank Cat Pastor, our excellent technical producer, who's producing very technically today, I think. Uh, and then uh, Jonathan McPants, uh, one of the producers of the Colin McEnroe Show, is up here screening calls and stuff like that. And it's a team effort. That's what I'm trying to say. It's a team effort. Uh, all right, so I'm definitely going to talk to Sarah, and then I'm going to talk to Mike from Madison, and I, then I'll get to as many other people as I possibly can. But time is scant at this point. Sarah, hi, you're on the air. Hi. So, um, how are you? Good. I'm fine. Yeah. I, I, when I was little, I was like the fastest kid on my block. I could be all the boys. We'd play ghost in the graveyard. I would get there first. And then like around sixth, seventh grade, like even the little wimpy boys were beating me. And I'm very sensitive to athletes that are, um, females but born in a male body mm-hmm. but at the same time there is physiology like fast twitch muscles and testosterone and things like that so i i always wonder would there ever be a transgender league that would seem to be the i mean once again i don't i don't pretend to be any kind of expert on all this i am searching for answers as opposed to having answers but i'm pretty much where you are what you just described and that would seem to me to be you know a potentially fairer way to do all this. I mean, I think, you know, the answer that the athletes are going to come up with is, well, no, I don't want to, 
I don't want to be ghettoized. I don't want to, you know, competing in some kind of format. I want to go up against the people who who are like me who are really good. But then the question is, what does like me mean in that context? And and is it reasonable to say that a person who was born, to use your terms, a female born in a female body is the same as a female born in a male body? And so, yeah, I'm full of sympathy for transgender people. It's this area of sports competition is kind of where things break down a little bit anyway. So I don't know. I don't, it doesn't sound like either one of us has exactly the right answer yet. Topic, though. Thanks for bringing it up. All right. Thanks. Well, actually, somebody else brought it up. Uh, all right. Here's So we got a call from somebody who I'm going to say was named Tom who wanted to know how daily life would be different for him or for anybody else if, in fact, we lost our democracy, if, in fact, we no longer had a functioning democracy. It's a terrific question, and I think Mike has probably thought more clearly about it than, than I have so far. So, Mike, you have the floor. Hey, Colin, how are you doing? I really enjoy your program. <clears throat> um, for me, it really depends on what you care about. Uh, and, like, for my own life, uh, I'm an avid naturalist and a bird watcher. I've been watching birds since I've been a young boy, and I've seen a marked decline in bird life, uh, which really pains me, to be honest. Uh, you know, 70% of bird life loss. And that's very specific, right? Most people don't experience that, but anyone who's aware of the natural world has seen this. So if, say, uh, a party came into rule that was advocating for the destruction of the environment and further the decline of something I care about, um, that would make me very sad. So it, it doesn't have to be an environmental issue. Say you care about um, helping the poor or immigration or something like that. Uh, if there's a party that could potentially come in that doesn't care about that and wants to um, do harm to all those issues, that would affect me. So, you know, if I was self-focused and just said, how would it affect me in my life and would I make enough money and, you know, uh, it would be fine. But, you know, I think if you have a more world view and care about other things other than your own life, it would greatly affect you. Yeah, although I would say this. First of all, thank you for thinking about this in the way that you did. You know, I think you could have a more or less functioning democracy that still has really rotten environmental policies. I, I would even argue we might be living in one of those right now. Um, you know, and I think you probably can also have something that is not a functioning democracy that, for whatever reason, decides to have good environmental policies. But I, I agree that, in general, the drift of things would be probably towards, I mean, if you have an autocratic government, probably the people who run big businesses who don't want to succumb to to environmental policies in any way. You know, it's going to be bad for the birds, bad for pretty much everybody, every other living creature as well. Certainly, if we had a country that was entirely taken over by cats, that would be the worst scenario, right? If like a cat became president, uh, that would be really bad for birds. Uh, so keep your cats indoors, people. No more outdoor cats. They're part of the problem that Mike's dealing with right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. The the problem is that Tom's asking 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 kind of a structural question would be it would would the lack of a functioning electoral system result in specific changes and you know i mean i think mike's suspicion is correct <laughs> that environmental policies would get even worse but i mean we could probably find a couple of countries in the world that really aren't you know 
truly democratic that maybe have halfway decent. I can't think of any off the top of my head. It's not like Brazil has really good environmental policies. Uh, all right. So um, I don't know. Do we have time for one more call? I guess we should. We'll take one more call. We'll take Arthur. Uh, Arthur, you have the floor. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just, I'm amazed at the way the right and the religious right and conservatives seem so capable of taking on uh, symbols like the flag, uh, like our national anthem, like the Christmas tree, and paying homage to the thing itself without any attention to the ideas and the spirit that lie behind each of them. Uh, the flag is a symbol of national unity, yet they seem to be bent on sowing divisiveness every chance they get. Uh, certainly the Christmas tree is, is a symbol for Christians and the ideas of Christianity, and it, it seems like that's the last thing that they're concerned with when it comes to honoring the ideas of Christianity. You know, take care of your neighbor, uh, do unto others who have to do unto you. Let's welcome the immigrants into our home. Let's take care of the, the poor. Those are all things that they seem to spurn, yet they've managed to make um, those symbols, if you don't display them and honor them, you are somehow un-American or, or un-Christian, or you are somehow at fault. And right. They're very good at doing it. Well, interesting point, and, and it could open up a, a long discussion, except that I have a minute and 15 seconds. I wish we were ending the show with the song by the greatest Connecticut folk singer, that I've ever personally met. And I've met a lot of folk singers. Hugh Blumenfeld's uh, song, Let's All Sing Our Praises to That Long-Haired Radical Socialist Jew. That's his his song about Jesus. I mean, you know, if you really sort of pay attention to what Jesus is saying, um, stuff like the accumulation of wealth, uh, uh, you know, uh, unhinged and rampant capitalism, those are no-nos. Those are no-nos. A lot of the things conservatives like were no-nos to Jesus. All right. We have to go. Thanks for participating. Thanks to Kat. Thanks to McPants. And we will be back tomorrow with another show. <laughs>